So hello and um, welcome to Dharmaloka. Happy New Year to everyone. Thanks for taking some time out um, in the holiday season, especially in Australia. And those of you watching online overseas, um, I hope you're having a pleasant sort of time of the year. Um, first couple of the year, I think they were quite successful last year, thanks to Manel and, and the library putting them together. So today what we're going to do, and hopefully it'll be a big use to everybody, um, is a book called Bear Awareness. Now, Bear Awareness um, is interesting. Um, thanks, kind sir. Uh, what service? See, this is what happens when you <laughs> offer to give a talk. Um, Bear Awareness um, is different in um, style from some of the other books uh, by Ajahn Brahm that the basis of this book, the reason it came together, um, thank you. That's cool. Thank you. Sorry. Um, it came together um, from questions and answers that are held at our meditation retreat center in Jhana Grove. I think the questions and answers in this book um, were taken from like a four-year period. And um, they're meant to kind of reflect uh, questions that perhaps not a beginning meditator, but someone who's given meditation a go. The questions that they would ask um, in the evening session at the end of the day at Jhana Grove. And um, for those of you who aren't aware, um, when a meditation retreat is on, a little nice wicker basket is left outside the meditation hall and the students, the attendees, are encouraged to put any question they want, any question they want into that box and the questions from that particular day, they get answered between about 8 and 9.30 um, each evening by Ajahn Brahm or a different monastic if they're holding the, the uh, retreat. Ajahn Hasapanya held a great retreat just before the end of the year. So did Ayaseri um, for her project, the Patichara Foundation. So question and answer um, uh, framework and um, that's the basis of the book all the way through. Now, interestingly, when I did my kind of research on it, I said to myself, oh, it's interesting for somebody looking at this that it's one of the few books that I've come across from Wisdom that doesn't have an index. So um, my review of the book sort of taught me that there are basic themes to the book that are really sort of helpful to understand. And there is, you know, some form of grouping to this um, if you want to sort of dive into um, a specific se uh, section. As we go through the session today, um, we'll try and take uh, questions from online in, in real time. Um, so if we were talking about wild mind, for example, why someone is suffering with, you know, overthinking, then I'll try and 
catch that question when it comes in with the help of the um, uh, helpful assistance in the sound room and, uh, and we'll try and handle it there and then. So making a start, um, just before we started actually, we, we were talking about you can download this book you know, into a, a device and look at it on screen, but there is something nice about holding a book in your hand. And the thing I like about holding this book in my hand is, is the cover. And I think the cover is really clever. Um, that you've got this um, image of quite a wild bear uh, in the background as the shadow um, to a teddy bear. And the reason that the book was put together is saying, well, these are questions and answers about taming your wild mind. So the first thing is you might look at that and say, oh, what's the relevance you know, between the wild bear and the teddy bear? And the more that you dive into the book, um, and the more you know, that everybody understands the style of Ajahn Brahm, in one sense you can get to choose between whether you want to be the wild bear or whether you want to be the teddy bear. Because that's the, what meditation can give you as a skill. And let's be cheeky for a second. There may be a lot of people out in the world who say, well, I've just got wild mind. I, I tried to tame it once or twice. I couldn't. So you metaphor, you know, you must be smoking funny cigarettes or something because that that just isn't possible. Yeah. And when people start meditation, there, there was a lady who came up last night from the UK. I think it was her first visit to Dharmaloka. And she'd been saying she'd been struggling a lot with her meditation and she saw it as somewhat of a chore and she really needed to push herself hard and um, you know why couldn't she bring this mind under control and um, you know I tried to remind her of some of the teachings that Ajahn had given last night but also they're in many of his talks on on YouTube and saying Meditation isn't about forcing something. Meditation isn't really about fighting your own mind. Meditation would be about making peace with your mind. And if you make peace with your mind, then you can be closer to the teddy bear than you could to the wild mind. And interestingly, when I gave one of my first talks um, during COVID, uh, it's getting on now for about three years ago, isn't it? When, when COVID first struck. But the monastics decided to give um, one talk a day online from Jhana Grove to support people who were in lockdown and were getting depressed and like, what do I do and, and how do I look after my mind? And for one of the talks, because I was in Jhana Grove, I got my new friend. So I had a teddy bear. So I gave the talk and somebody in the comments box says, I can't trust you as a monk because teddy bears are for wimps, you know, they're like blankets for four and five year olds. 
And Ajahn must have heard about that because then he got himself taking pictures, holding lots of teddy bears. And we started, we started to build it into a number of talks. Now, it is a teddy bear, but the teddy bear can also be a manifestation of your mind, which is what's, what's in this book. And there's a number of sections about the teddy bears because... If you're feeling a bit anxious or the wild mind is running wild, one of the things we say on the longer retreats is, go and get one of the teddy bears. There's 60 at the front of the room there at Jana Grove. Have the teddy bear be your friend for a few days. And the teddy bear can be a manifestation of you looking after yourself. Some people don't give a lot of love, what we would call meta to themselves. So, the teddy bear can be sort of stroked, you know, and, and, and understood. And there's something sort of nice and tactile about it in the sense of you, you've got a friend with you. So surprise, surprise, the front cover, you know, which I'm starting with says, why the teddy bear and how would you get to be the teddy bear? So we'll put it down for a second, but I'll keep bringing it back. So thank you for coming with me. Um, Ajahn starts this book with metta, you know, which is an absolute classic, and says, if you want to have a peaceful and gentle environment, especially between your ears, then if you're peaceful and gentle and kind to every moment of the day, when you go to meditate, that's likely to be what shows up. So, if I wanted to act like a teddy bear all day, and I didn't want to be growly, and I didn't want to be difficult with people, and I didn't judge them, I've got a more of a better chance to be in meta, yeah? So, the questions and answers in here, they kind of start from a light point. So, if anybody's got the book with them, if they turn to page one, you know, the first set of questions and answers, the heading he gave to this section is a ha-ha-yana approach to meditation. Now, ha-ha-yana is a, is a play on words that um, it's about laughing at yourself or laughing at the world, ha-ha, um, but in the sense of if you can use that to say, I'll move out of the worldly entanglement with difficult things, with angry thoughts, with negative thoughts. And if I give meta to you, there might be a chance that you give meta back to me. Yeah. So the way the book is, is set up, if you want to use it in uh, you know, each of the questions and answers, the start of the book, and many times in the sections, it's about coming back to compassion and sort of being quite light-hearted. And um, one of the enjoyable aspects, you know, when I found Ajahn, you know, almost sort of 10 years ago now, is um, his ability to build humor into the stories. He asked a Tibetan monk some years ago, might be 40 years ago now, what's the best way to teach um, in that Tibetan monk's experience? And he said, make sure you make them laugh 
And when people are laughing and their mouths are wide open, drop in something profound. But often what people don't realize is there's often something profound in the joke that he's just told. If you go back and read the joke, it's a joke, but the joke may also be a turn on some, something that's in the Buddhist teachings. Um, or he's trying to give a message about being, being selfless, um, uh, being compassionate, yeah? Uh, we had some uh, difficult incidents only a week or two ago here where a couple of people came at different times. One tried to set a fire, you know, almost like arson. Another one was after money. Um, a good person in the center here gave money. When they came out of this meditation hall, they found that their shoes had been stolen. And, you know, these weren't cheap shoes. But Ajahn then used that as a story to say, how could you be compassionate to those that are difficult? So he has this famous story about a monk um, hearing rustling in the night and goes to the main meditation hall and finds there's a thief there with a big knife and the, and the thief is trying to break into the um, donation box. And the thief is in a bad mood, much like the growly bear, and says, you know, like, give me what I want. And, um, uh, you know, why, why have you disturbed me? I just want to steal stuff and then I'll be out of here. And the monk hands over to the keys to the donation box and says, well, if you want the money here, the keys, don't, don't destroy the donation box because it takes ages to fix them. So the thief takes the money and uh, the monk turns to him and says, doesn't look as though you've eaten for a few days either. He said, above the donation box there, there's a cupboard. So take whatever food you want. It's leftovers from, from today. So... You're quite happy to take it, yeah? The thief leaves. He gets caught at another job a few days later and serves 10 years in prison. 10 years later, there's another rumble one night at the Dharma Hall, and the monk goes down. And sure enough, the thief is back with a knife. And the thief says, oh, do you remember me? And um, the monk says, well, of course I do. And he said, um, yeah, I've come back. I've served 10 years, but every day I was in prison, I kept thinking about you because you're one of the few people in my life that was kind to me. I came to steal and you gave me stuff. And when you gave me stuff, you didn't say you were going to call the police because you said you'd given it to me out of compassion. And, uh, and the monk said, yeah, that's right. And this, he said... I realized when I was in prison that I stole the wrong thing. I've come back to steal your secrets about how to be compassionate and kind. How can I serve the community? So the stories, you see, they blend into, you can choose to be the wild bear, or you can choose to be softer. And generally, and I think this is true of karma, generally if you do good deeds, then the good deeds will come back to you. If you do um, evil deeds, then sometimes they catch up to you and the consequences are a lot bigger you know, than, than you think they're going to be. So the first chapter, and then I'll just ask for some questions from, from Manel and others.
The first chapter is about setting um, the conditions up for yourself and being really sort of gentle and kind to yourself. And um, even down to, in, in meditation, like spend the first five to 10 minutes relaxing your body. Most people kind of forget that the body is attached to the mind and they go, oh, I've struggled with my thinking and I've struggled with my mind and you know, uh, my boyfriend doesn't love me at the moment or you know, I think the boss is gonna fire me. They wanna go straight to the mind and find an antidote that will work forever. But they don't realize that with the mind being attached to the body, you know, they're both separate but also interdependent. If the body's tense, the mind's likely to be tense. If you can try and relax the body first, then when you go to the mind, you'll often find the mind is more receptive. And later in the book, there's classic stories about where Ajahn's tried to help people in these Q&As or he's giving examples of Someone rings up and says they've got anxiety. Someone says that they've got depression. We've seen hundreds of cases now, he's seen thousands, where you, you, you learn as more as you meditate on the body in a gentle way, that there's a connection with what's going on in your body is coming from the mind and vice versa. So, so give a quick example. Um, this particular lady rang up, um, I, can, I can quote the page later or we can put it in the comments field um, once the session's over, but this lady rings up and um, I think she was studying for a degree in Melbourne. Um, she was at university, but somebody had given her Ajahn's number at the monastery and she rings up and says, I can't, uh, I can't get out of bed, I'm that anxious. How can you help me? And Ajahn, you know, in his cheeky, humorous, but general way says, well, I need a bit more information. Um, where, is, where is it in your body? That's the first thing he wants to know. And she goes, I don't know. So he said, well, have a look around for a couple of days and then ring me back when you've got that answer, yeah? So she rings back two or three days later and she says, oh, it's, it, it seems to be in the chest area and it's a bit of a knot. Um, it feels, you know, quite strong and, you know, a bit like a fist. Um, just, oh, good. Yeah, you, you, you're on the way now. That's, that, that's, a, that's a good observation. What do you think you should do with that feeling? She says, I don't know. That's why I'm wrong you. And he said, well, think about it for two or three days and ring me back. <laughs> so she rings back two or three days later and she said, I've, I've given it a lot of consideration and I think it needs some tender loving care. I, I, I get a sense it needs stroking or relaxing or, you know, I've got to find a way to undo this knot. Yes, he says, you know, you're on the way now. Uh, this is, you know, this is going to be really helpful to you. So um, she said, um, what should I do? He said, well, can you stroke it? If you think it needs some tender loving care, oh no, I'm, I'm too weak to do that, you know. So is there anybody there that would help you? Would your boyfriend stroke the edge of your chest? She said, yeah, yeah, I think you'd do that. I think you'd do that. So we'll give it a go for two or three days and, <laughs> and bring me back. 
We're coming towards the end of the story. She rang back three days later and said, I get it. <laughs> the, the, the pain has started to subside. As I've kind of relaxed the body, then I'm feeling more relaxed in myself. What I consider more relaxed in myself is showing up in my mind. Now I've got an antidote, and I also know I've got the antidote myself without asking my boyfriend to do it. So, great. So we've been through the process, mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of your mind, what positive action can you take, fairly gentle, doesn't cost you anything, you know, you can, you can sort of make it happen. So, again, we can create this phantom of a wild mind and say, I don't want those feelings, you know, I don't deserve that other person's anger. The other person's anger is their responsibility. It's got nothing to do with you. We've all been on the receiving end of it. We've all sadly probably given anger to other people and we kind of didn't realize that we were judging too harshly or we weren't at peace ourselves or you know, we'd had a bad day. Um, so how can you break the frame and say, okay, I'm gonna put down everything that's happened before the meditation and say, I'm gonna give myself 30 minutes of peace 30 minutes of calm, and I'll try and let the past and the future go, yeah? I'll just try and be in the present moment, just as a, as a feature of nature, yeah? Anyway, in typical fashion, I've talked too much too quickly, so, Manel, any observations from the book? You, you might have to speak loudly, because we don't have a, right, or, or I'll tell the audience what you wanted to ask, yeah. Here's the mic coming. Yeah. Just just your observations, like how the how the book might have helped you, or. Yeah, so I'm I'm reading the the first one about metta, and um, I found that it's been very helpful. I mean, especially right now, my brother is very ill, and then I, I looked at it and I thought, oh, maybe I should send him the book because he's struggling with uh, coping with his um, cancer diagnosis. And they only gave him six months to six to a year, to, six months to a year to live. Um, so we've been trying to teach him how to do metta meditation, and I believe this book makes it quite very simple. I mean, it makes it easier for them to understand, uh, especially the first one, how I approach. Um, the, I mean, the, the book itself is good because it's questions and answers, and it's most of the questions that we have that we don't really ask. So I think it's, that's why it's helpful. Yeah. Um, so let's send some meta to your brother. Yeah. And the interesting thing, I mean, if I have a quick look, if I can't find it quickly, we'll put it into the comments field afterwards. But there are a number of stories in here about people who have had incurable diseases that became cured. So even last night's talk, Ajahn brought up a couple where he was asked, you know, um, some people said, you know, I'm, I'm kind of really suffering and meditation's not going to help. So in the book is the famous story about a man who, I think he was on a retreat in Sydney, so it's going back some years now, but he had um, uh, sinus cav uh, 
cancer in, in the sinuses. And during the meditations, he was like, <gasps> because he couldn't breathe through his nose. And people complained and said, can you ask that guy to... And Ajahn quite quickly found out what it was. And as soon as he told the audience that this person was suffering from a very difficult illness, then the people on the retreat started to give compassion you know, to, 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 um, to this good man. And his diagnosis was only six months to live. Anyway, on the ninth day of the course, and, and again, it's, it's, it's in the book, um, on the ninth day of the course, um, Ajahn's finished the course. He's in a car to go to Sydney Airport to fly back here. And the guy rushes out to see Ajahn and says, Ajahn, before you go, I've got to talk to you, I've got to talk to you. And, and Ajahn says, yeah, well, I, you know, I've just got a couple of minutes. And the guy said, in the last meditation, I heard this popping noise and the air rushed through my nose. So the tumor collapsed or went away only for a minute, but it changed, yeah? So Ajahn left and, and he was concerned that this person had started meditation, but perhaps it had come a bit late. You know, Ajahn's back in Sydney about six months later and this guy comes up to see him and says, do you remember me? And Ajahn says, no, I don't. Sorry, I see thousands of people, so I can't quite remember you. And he said, I was the guy with the nose and now it's completely gone. I kept the meditation going. And Ajahn goes, now I know why I don't recognize you because you look so different. So he put on weight. He was in a lighter mood. You know, he was happier and that type of stuff. And he, he, uh, apparently, you know, he, he just lived on and on. Now, there's no, there's no guarantee, but ironically, if you're prepared to give it a go, yeah, and it's about looking after yourself, and people are compassionate and caring for you, initially you might not find it sort of, you know, this, this is too hard. I'm, I've got a wild mind, you know, I, I don't deserve this diagnosis. Uh, nobody's going to listen to me. You know, I've got unfinished business in a number of areas. Being peaceful, kind, and gentle to yourself first is the best thing that you can do. It's like that um, when you're on the aircraft. If the masks happen to come down, put one on yourself first before you go and help somebody else. If you don't help yourself first, you can't go and help anybody else, yeah? So we send Meta to your brother in the comments section. Um, you know, I'll put the page number in. Um, and, you know, there's a reference there. And if, if I find any others in the book, you know, I'll put, I'll put that in, in there as well. My pleasure. Eddie, have you got any comments? Or? You take the mic. I very much. One of my friends uh, <clears throat> was asking me, I told him to do meditation and all that. So he said, uh, can you sleep doing meditation? So I said, uh, I mean, can you, can you meditate without sleeping? Or can you sleep without meditating? You know, whichever. And then uh, I said, give it a go. Try meditation and see how you go. And he also has got medical problems and all that. So I said, it's more like 
you meditate and heal oneself. So it's like self-healing. So I don't know. I mean, I haven't seen him after that. So hopefully he recovers. <laughs> so so thanks for the question. So again, I think it's towards the end of the book. So the last section called Greg and Dharma is pulling together some questions that don't necessarily sit easily in some of the other chapters. And there are some in there, such as, um, can you meditate while you're sleeping, is one. And two, do you have to sit in the lotus position, you know, back straight, sit up, chin in, um, to meditate. And historically, many of the teachers say, you know, if you don't sit in a certain position and you bolt upright, you're not gonna be able to meditate. And certainly there are schools out there in the Zen tradition that if you go on the retreat, it used to be the case they would have a stick and if you weren't sitting up, you'd get a whack on the back. So if you got the whack on the back and you were sitting next to the person who got the whack, that was meant to encourage you to be in a certain situation. Interestingly, another of Ajahn Brahm's stories that happened in China not so long ago and this uh, Zen monk, hit a lady in, I think it was probably, she was probably in Hong Kong, hit the person on the back. And she got a mobile phone out and rang the police and the guy was arrested and that was the end of the retreat. But um, I, I've tried this myself. I, I've got an, an old sort of back injury and it's not so much the posture you're in, although you want to be mindful and awake, but you want to have made the body really relaxed first, sufficient that you're gonna give the mind a chance. If you're in a lot of pain, then the meditation is gonna be fairly difficult, yeah? If you've relaxed the body and said, okay, I've spent five minutes there, I've got a, you know, a bit of a twinge in my hips or um, my ankles you know, a bit stiff. If you set the body up in a position of, um, comfort and ease, that's what you're looking for for the mind. You don't want to go, I'm going to have a fight with the body for 10, 15 minutes, and then I'll have a fight with the mind for 15 minutes, and I come out afterwards and go, oh, that was worse than you know, six or seven days, at, six or seven hours at work. The other thing is meditation, when you get to the stage of managing to reduce the thinking and keeping steering you know, your consciousness back to peace and quiet. Peace and quiet can be more relaxing than hours of sleep. So when the meditation becomes a good practice, you can generally not need more than about four hours sleep every night. Or if you had a difficult time during the day, then you can um, say, I'll go, I'll go meditate for half an hour. Because half an hour is going to give me a boost of energy that might last another three or four hours, um, or it, you know, resets your nervous system. Yep. Well, I've been really helped by people here today. So we said if there was a question um, online, we would sort of try and deal with it. So the question says. When I try to follow the guided meditation, I use kindfulness to make thoughts that arise in my mind disappear. However, this lasts for the whole 45 minutes. Am I doing this correctly? Uh, great question. Um, I'd say absolutely, because 
It's the thoughts that lead to the wild mind. And we have this belief that the body is ours, but the older you get, you realize the body's not yours. <laughs> the body belongs to nature. So even though we might spend a lot of time on the body and clothes, we gradually understand um, that the body's not ours. And that's where the mindfulness of the body is trying to lead you to. So, you know, in a cheeky, mischievous way, I'd say, okay, if I was in charge of my body, I could sit here now and ask the blood to change direction. Or I could stop one of my organs for 15 minutes and, and restart again. I can't do that unless I want to do myself a lot of harm. So, um, the questioner, you're really going well on the path <clears throat> if the thinking has stopped for 45 minutes. And again, people and, and the questions in this book, um, questions around, I'm not progressing fast enough. I haven't managed to get the ease yet. That's, that's what the Buddha would call an attachment. You're, you're looking for an achievement and we were brought up in an achievement culture, you know, must pass the exams, must find a partner, must get a new house, must look after the wife, must, um, you know, get a new car. Meditation is actually going the other way and says, um, the peacefulness and stillness is in this fathom long body and it's about going in. So the first thing which often takes a little while to get used to is managing just to stay in the present moment and not wanting anything. So you can't see outside um, what it looks like because um, the camera's facing this way, but it's a very beautiful day. You know, there's lots of strong nature, aspects of nature outside the window. Can you sit in nature just outside under a tree somewhere quiet and not want anything? And when you don't want anything, the thoughts start to go away. Where the thoughts, emotion, and the like come from? Number of references in this book, you know, thinking, overthinking, you know, they come up a lot. Um, we have thoughts and we have emotions because we miss them. Because we think they will help us get somewhere. So people say, you know, but why, why do I have all these horrible thoughts? Well, the thoughts are attached to something. I, I wish my husband was different. Um, I better get a cake, you know, for my friend's, um, you know, wedding in a week's time. The thoughts are there because we believe that they're going to be valuable. But one of the hardest things I'm going to say today is about 90% of the thoughts that we have on a daily basis aren't helpful. You might be sitting with a friend and you're having a nice conversation and went, oh, I missed that program on Netflix last night and, uh, you know, seven people got killed in the last episode. You know, I wonder what happened to... to... That person doesn't actually exist. <laughs> yeah? It's played by an actress. Uh, people feel they're going to miss out if they haven't seen it and when they go to work tomorrow, everybody's want to talk about the latest episode and you, you're not on, in on it. So we allow the thoughts to come, and the thoughts is really good representation of that wild mind. When you have meditation as a tool to use in your life, um, then you can start to think the thoughts that you want, 
and you, you see them coming across as like clouds and you're going, I'm going to let those clouds go because they're not helpful. I, I only want the helpful thought, right? And it takes a little bit of skill to do that. So the Buddha didn't want to teach a lot of things to confuse people. He just said, I'll teach you what will be really helpful. And he'll say, he'd say, there are three poisons, greed, hatred, and delusion. That's mainly what you need to know. So greed is about wanting and craving. And craving for things, if it becomes like a thirst, if it becomes a habit of the mind, if it's the thought patterns, you're never satisfied. It always leads to, I want more, I want more. Hatred is, I don't want that, or I want to push it away. Like, this relationship is finished now, and I thought she was really wonderful, and now I've got a very different view. Ironically, it's often the same person, but it's almost like a sign of madness. One going in that you saw aspects that perhaps weren't there, and now on the way out, you're trying to find more negative reasons as to why I want to move out of this situation. Neither is true, often, when you look at it. We judge too harshly. We don't appreciate what's come through our conditioning from our parents, from school, from kind of what we were taught, from how we, was, how we are to be in the world, yeah? So great question. Um, I think you're really on the path. Um, we'll put a few um, tags in the comment section on thinking and, and overthinking. Um, let me just pick out a number of other sections. I think we've got about sort of 10 minutes left. Did you want to say something else, Manil? So again, great observation. Um, thanks for bringing it up. Uh, kind of helped me some years ago. We don't call Jhana Grove the meditation center that we mainly use. And we're going to do meditation here in about 40 minutes with Ajahn Brahm. But we don't call Jhana Grove the concentration camp. A lot of people wouldn't come. Yeah? But someone who's had deep meditation experiences, therefore can talk about what they found, what's happened to them. It's quite a breakthrough to say where you're being directed towards is stillness. And why stillness? Well, if you concentrate, you're likely to be bringing up more thoughts going, I'm not concentrating enough, and I'm not concentrating enough. <clears throat> stillness would have the absence of thought. You'd be aware in the present moment, but when you're aware in the present moment in the stillness, then you meet what Ajahn Brahm's definition of meditation is, which is stillness, silence, and clarity of mind. Now, most people don't ask him questions about clarity of mind. Does anybody have an idea about what he means by clarity of mind? Would you borrow the mic? Sorry. sorry. clarity of mind is because I've been practicing meditation 
and I've got, I've got to the stage where I can, I can you know, sit and have stillness and um, let my thoughts go and all that, but yet I haven't reached that and I don't know what I'm, I'm looking for. Okay. Um, short, short answer, um, if I may, because um, we've got a few minutes left. So clarity in mind is meant to point you towards the fact that mind causes most of the problems in our life. So if you get to the point and saying, all of these thoughts are happening and I feel the urge to act, the urge to act is coming from greed or the urge to act is coming from hatred. Clarity of mind is that you're prepared to put it all down and that silence and stillness is more important to you than allowing yourself to be agitated and go somewhere else, right? So clarity of mind is a short form for the jhanas. So the jhanas being you've, you've practiced the meditation sufficient, you understand what the body is, you've seen that feelings aren't yours, you've seen that the thoughts aren't yours. So when you've had an extended period in silence, you ask yourself at the end of the meditation, what was missing? What was missing was a lot of the agitation. It was so peaceful. You know, Ajahn has this expression, you know, it's a bliss better than sex. And he says, you know, it's not a factor of one, it's like a hundred times better because um, you're prepared to let go. And when you let go, the stillness inside is deeper and deeper and deeper. It, it just builds on itself, yeah? So clarity of mind says, if there's, if there's nibbana there, if there's stillness, we go and spoil it by bringing stuff in. So you can have a great meditation and you feel, your mind feels a bit different for quite some time afterwards. And um, then something happens and you go, I just lost all my stillness. I've got to go and deal with that issue over there, yeah? So, um, number of insights again in the book. Um, we'll, we'll put some references in, in the comment field, so, so thanks for asking that. Um, is it, I'm just asking, Wonderful assistant. Can we go for five or ten minutes, or do we need to wrap up in five minutes? Or okay, I'll, I'll, I'll just summarise parts of the book, just in people saying, "Well, you know, what's in what's in the other chapters?" And so, is that okay with everybody? So, um, I, I'm going to get in touch with Wisdom or we'll see if we can put a, a, a bit of an index together because um, the first chapter. A lot about metta, there's a, there's a lovely uh, question in there, can you give metta to a dishwasher? Um, can you get inanimate objects you know, to respond? But in the, in the first chapter, questions and answers in dealing when you're in pain or whether, when you feel a, a strong buildup of energy, and to try and focus on happiness and goodness. So again, sometimes people forget in meditation, make yourself calm, you know? get my friend out again, make yourself calm and peaceful in the first few minutes, but then generate happiness and goodness inside you. So we often know what happiness and goodness is that's non-sensual. So for me, I might think of my children, I, you know, I've got a son and a daughter, you know, I'm still very, very keen on, but give yourself the energy of happiness and goodness inside yourself 
which is wholesome, which has got some metta in it, or it's got some compassion, or it's got some sympathetic joy, medita, you know, for, for someone else. The second chapter, Bear Awareness, that uh, concentrates on dealing with ridiculous thoughts, how to um, stay in the present moment, how you stop planning, um, why do we crave feelings and emotions? I touched on, on that a little while back. Not judging your meditation, like just do a number of meditations and have them as experiments. Um, there is no such thing as a bad meditation. There's only the ones that you don't do. One of my teachers told me that, but yes, it's true that um, if you go with it, um, then you build up you know, strength and, and you learn a lot. Um, when you go deeper and you come across these states called nimittas, um, he explains what the light is you know, that comes up in your mind. And again, not trying to get attached to it like the outside world, but allow yourself to go in and enjoy the process, and that takes you deeper and deeper. And nice bit towards the end of um, the chapter on bare awareness is about how to deal with the ego and sort of letting go of self. Third chapter, um, a painless butt. So when you complain about um, uh, sitting is really difficult or what postures can I get, you know, get into. But this quite nicely starts off with the fact that um, uh, we're mainly control freaks. So we try and force the mind to do with something. And um, you can set up good vibrations for the meditation. Some people choose to, to chant, yeah? Um, the, there are ideas here in terms of dealing with the mental uh, chatter. Um, saying to yourself, I don't need to go anywhere, there's nothing I need to do. Let me try and sort of relax that butt. Um, your friend Eddie, um, if they support themselves up on the cushions and they were kind of lying down, we wouldn't say uh, that's a bad thing to do as long as it's not a posture that the body would remember, that's where I go into sleep. So some people tend to sleep in a, diff in a certain position. If it's a non-sleep position, you can certainly meditate you know, in, in that position. Um, uh, meta experiences, nice one in this particular chapter is about sustaining attention on the breath. So treating the breath as a sort of gorgeous and fun part of your human nature and try and be with that. Um, you know, that, that it's a, a very helpful tool given to you for free by nature. I'll quickly rattle through the other um, chapters if I may, so there's just a few more to go. Flying Buddha Air um, is about the ability to know what's happening right now. So it's the difference between the lights being on and the lights being off. So what's an example? So I can look at Manel. If I focus on Manel, I can't focus on Eddie. So if I can keep the focus on Manel, then that teaches me not to get distracted. Uh, this feels a really difficult task. So I'll go over here and somebody else pops in. So it's, it's how to stay with that attention in a, in a relaxed and, and, and helpful way. Um, there are stories then of monastics who became enlightened and why they became enlightened. And it's about the fact they were meditating for a number of years. And then they heard one book teaching from the Buddha and they were there. 
Buddha Air actually re refers to stream entry, which is you know, one of the attainments on the path that once you're a stream enterer, um, you won't be born in a lower realm next time around, and you'll be out of samsara within about seven lifetimes. So Ajahn goes on to describe the connection between jhanas and rebirth, stories about ghosts, what's the longest living ghost um, that anybody's been aware of, that seems to be 150 years, what's the connection with past lives and karma. Um, and that chapter kind of finishes up with saying, that who knows is not the self. Um, we're always reinforcing the ego, so how do you reduce the ego? And how do you see the connection between the karma you do in the world and then how your meditation is or um, you know, what, what effects there'd be? Um, chapter five I found really helpful because it's about how to apply kindfulness every day. Um, the nose cancer story, I just found it. It's the beginning of chapter five, so it's there. Um, there are tips on dealing with trauma and release, frustration, uh, why we try and have discipline and control and how we're control freaks and um, how our perceptions can get really muddled. Anger really is a feeling that's about losing control um, and having negative thoughts towards other people. So again, if you can sit with it or you find a Kalyana Mitta, a meditation friend, you can perhaps sit and share and going, I think I'm starting to get it why anger doesn't work. It, it, it never works, you know? The Buddha had this wonderful expression, hatred never ceases with hatred, it only ceases with love. So after a while you find that. And um, just to quickly finish on this chapter, Ajahn tells a lovely story against himself, you know, about whether he would get scolded if, if he did something wrong in the monastery. And um, one day he went to Ajahn Chah Ajahn Chah had this big container, like if you needed something like soap, or a razor and stuff, you had to go and ask the boss, because um, they had very limited supplies. So Ajahn Brahm thought he was asking for soap, but his tie was one or two words out. He asked for a pineapple. And Ajahn Chah for weeks told everybody that the British washed with pineapples, <laughs> that they used pineapples on their body. Of course, the point of the story is you can turn a negative incident into fun, and if we make mistakes in the monastery, we tend to laugh at ourselves as opposed to, you know, they're being blamed. So lots of bits at the end of the chapter about, you know, not judging others, um, you know, not, not breaking the precepts, adultery, killing, um, you know, in the world. And um, how you can take a difficult incident, you know, um, and, and turn it into something nice. So it happened earlier today. We, we do a, a walk around the suburb uh, seven o'clock in the morning and people are putting things into our balls. It's our arms round. And uh, there's a dog that we meet every Saturday and we always save a sausage from breakfast and we give it to this dog. Anyway, the dog's owner is there today and said, oh, you see these bananas that I want to give you today? For months I've been collecting the dog poo and putting it into the soil around them. So this banana is a manifestation you know, of, the, of the dog poo. The point of the story is you can take a difficult situation and say, how do I turn that into something good? So 
If people are interested, there's a lovely story about Ajahn's father, um, uh, who appears to have you know, been beaten as a child by Ajahn's grandfather, but how when he had children, he was never going to go there. That he took the poo from his childhood, you know, 70, 80 years ago, and said, I'm just not going to you know, be like that. So you, you can always take poo from a, from a situation and, and turn it into to, to gold, something a lot nicer. Um, I've overextended, so I, I, th I think I'll stop there. If anybody wants to ask questions afterwards or um, uh, kind of write to us and say, um, can you give us some more information on the book? You know, I'd be happy to do that. I think the initiative is a great one. Um, the monks want to be of service. So to finish up, if I may, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have an Ajahn Brahm moment. Why did the Australian bear resign from his second job? Because he wanted to spend koala tea time with his family. Why, why don't bears eat fast food? Because it's hard to catch them, fast food. But my favorite, this is the one I found you know, a couple of days back that I want people to remember. When they look at the cover of the book, and when they think they can be the wild bear or the, the gentle teddy bear, what's as big as a bear and weighs nothing? The shadow. So the shadow, the shadow doesn't actually exist. So the wild mind is often made up. That's the point of all of this and saying, you've got a choice, go for this. <laughs> You know, in its manifestation, I mean, this is peace, love, gentleness, kindness to everyone, but to yourself first. Because if it kind of works for you, you might go, hmm, might be useful over here. All those, yeah? So, thank you for the privilege of being able to give you a talk. May everyone here and overseas have a really happy new year. And um, hope your meditation gets deeper and hope we can be a service. And... Um, we learn a lot from the audiences as well, like a monastic is always learning from supporters or people who, who come to call. So do visit us here, do visit us online, support the nuns' monastery, support the monks' monastery, come and see us, we'd, we'd love to see you. So I do. And thank you to the audiovisual team. <laughs>